And we're back with the Energy Podcast, right away alongside the good doctor herself, Dr. Ellen Wald. Ellen, how are things in Florida today? Things in Florida are like, you know, the same as they generally are in the summer. Um, you know, can't can't complain too much. Mm-hmm. We're not getting horrible flooding like they are up, you know, north and east. So Yeah, we're not getting flooding here. <laughs> no, no, no flooding here in Texas. It's a, a high is 108 today, 109 tomorrow. So no, no flooding in our foreseeable future. So we're we're safe from that. But uh, okay, well, let's get into it. A lot of talk about oil demand uh, and China. I even looked at the price today. Let me just pull it up here because I'm curious. Okay, so Brent's at 78, WTI is at 74. Oil dips more than 1% on demand fears after Chinese economic data. Now, we talked about this a little last week about the numbers that were coming out. Uh, it looks like the bulls did not get what they're looking for. Yeah, apparently there was growth. Yeah, see, their GDP grew 6.3% year on year in the second quarter, but the analyst forecasts were 7.3%. So apparently that translates to the world is ending. Yeah, cut the, cut the prices. In, I mean, could you imagine if the U.S. economy grew six point three percent? Well, and you know, what's interesting is I'm curious what the ant, which analysts they are, because um, I, I did a piece for Heart, and I don't know if they ever actually published it or not. Now I think about it, but on Chinese demand, um, and the analyst prediction from McKinsey, I think, is like five percent is the normal, is the nor is is kind of the. That what they expect to be the the normative case or how they presented, I think, and so five percent is what they were predicting. So you're getting six point three percent. Now that was for the year, so maybe second quarter year over year is different. But five percent prediction, you're getting six point three percent from that perspective. You're up a lot, you know. And so the yeah, I guess it depends on which analyst you you ask. Yeah, I think that they were expecting more because of this, you know, they're expecting more because of the post-COVID recovery. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why, and I, maybe they're looking at the IA numbers because the IA was all about like growth in China and, and other developing countries is just going to explode and it hasn't. So maybe that's what they were looking for. Um, I don't know. It hasn't exploded. That's for sure. Well, I mean, again, like you say, six point Three percent or whatever it is, is is not a not a terrible number. It's not like it's you know the economy's in a recession. So um, again, I think it's this whole like correction. Like they expected huge numbers and they're just not panning out. So we're just in this like slow pro- correction kind of you know time. Yeah, but if you look at the next piece. China's June industrial output rises four point four percent, and retail sales are up three point one percent. So, you know, there's there's uh, and and this- well, that's what's so curious. Like, why are we getting such like bizarre? You know, it's like GDP numbers are bad, but you know, so this is but so so this is not compared to the first quarter. This is compared to last year, mm-hmm. second quarter. When so last year in the second quarter, they had a lot of COVID restrictions, right? Right. The numbers should look good compared to that. But apparently this was up for May. So China's industrial output grew 4.4% in June from a year earlier, unexpectedly accelerating from 
sorry, from 3.5% seen in May. So their industrial demand, their industrial output is up, but demand just says demand remains lukewarm. So what what and this was even above the expectations. They were saying a 2.7% increase. So does nobody care? I, I I don't know. This is very confusing to me. Like, are China's numbers actually bad or what? Well, they're always they're always made up. So I guess it's <laughs> oh, you... well. That's, if I was making up China's numbers, I'd make up something much better. You must have something much better, right? So maybe there are there are worse. But you know, if you think about the U.S. and you know some other Western economies after reopening, didn't we see some of this too? Though things get going, and then all of a sudden things slow down because these prices come in. I mean. You think about some of the, uh, I remember going, my, well, my youngest was sick, I don't know, six months ago, going to the store you couldn't get Tylenol for or, or whatever it was, or ibuprofen, oh, God. whatever. You know, and so there's there's all these, yep. when you go from nothing. Was a formula shortage? Formula, yeah, we had the formula sh- shortage. So, we, so the, now I, don't, I don't track all the U.S. data, but there's just going to be, Bits and starts as you reopen. It's, it's, it's never a smooth thing. That's not how it works. And so yeah. the world's changed and new things have come and new areas to go. And so it, it, it was going to take them probably a year or two to kind of refigure. I mean, do you think that the, this, do you think that the U.S. economy, not from a standpoint of inflation and all that stuff, but just from a supply chain, logistic, do you think now we're kind of finally past all of that? I think not quite, to be honest. I think we're now in like a, I think that there's still like people who like cuts that have been made that haven't come back. And that maybe we may be like, this may be the new normal is that they're going to be, you know, nothing is, is because like going to work maybe quite as smoothly just because there've been a lot of cuts because they realize like people will accept slower times and companies can trim fat by, you know, having fewer people or whatnot. I think that, you know, it's, I'm not sure. I know there's a lot of problems going on still with airlines and hotels and and things like that. And I wonder if part of that is because they, you know, they normally are able to accommodate periods of really high travel. And this year, they're also just like, like last year, remember there was all the like missing luggage, everyone's luggage was missing because there weren't enough um, baggage handlers that were hired. And I wonder if they've just accepted that, like, they're never going to hire enough people to service the really high times because it's just not, it's not worth it. These people will still fly, even if they screw ups happen and, and they have to pay for it. Or I wonder if it's really just a result of like the, all the bad weather they're having on the East Coast. You, you can't always tell because it's like the East Coast tries to make everything about them and you think the whole world is them when it's not. Um so I, I wonder if it's that. I also wonder if there's a push to produce, buy less from China in general. And so we're going to see, it may take supply chains longer to kind of figure that whole thing out as like the West buys less maybe from China. I I, I don't know. It's, it's a really good question, but I do wonder if there will be, at least for a while, some kind of like um, cuts in the system as a result of pandemic because companies like, oh, well, I guess we don't really need that because, you know, people aren't really going to complain that much. One yeah. of the things, though, that I was curious about it, and I read this in an article, I think it was last week. Yeah. Um, that there's uh, they were saying some guy 
Desmond Shum, I don't know, that he was basically saying that China's economic conditions are worse than people thought and that um, basic products aren't selling, consumer prices are nearing deflation. And I was wondering if maybe, you know, we get these numbers out of China, but the actual situation in China is worse. And like you said, the numbers may, like the numbers come out and they don't look so good, but people look at them and they're like, those are the numbers. Like they're not bad, but the fact that they're not so amazing means that it's actually like way worse so that the market is actually reacting to not to the numbers that they're seeing, but to what they think those numbers mean, which is a lot worse. I, I don't know. You, you say Desmond Shum? Yeah. You might, you might not remember this. You got an interview request one time for him and you sent it to me and I have him on my podcast, Desmond Shum. <laughs> He's really? Got, yeah, he's got a book. It's actually right here on my account. On my oh, uh, did we have him on the podcast? Uh, well, he came no because he was talking about uh Chinese stuff. So he came on inside the war room. Oh, um, and so yeah, Desmond Shum right there. So his oh, what did he say? So <laughs> it's interesting. So he was you know him and his uh, wife were deep into the business. If you're curious about inside politics of China, that's a good book to read. Uh, I'm sure it's probably. A little bit rose-colored glasses from his perspective on kind of what he was doing, but whatever. Um, and you know, his wife was picked up by the CCP and, and held prisoner. And when the book came out, they released her for like a day, and and uh, and ha- had her call him to try to get him to stop the book release. Oh yeah, yeah, this was a big Did deal. She ever like, get out? Is she still in custody? To my knowledge, they put her back in. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh, well, it, was weird. it was weird because he was going to come on the podcast and they sent me a thing like, Hey, he's got to reschedule. I was like, okay, whatever. And, um, turns out he was dealing with that, which is they let her out to call. I say let her out. Just, they give her a phone or whatever to call and, ah. and uh, you know, to try to talk him out of releasing the book. And of course, you know, that's not how that works. <laughs> not when yeah. they printed, you know, thousands of books and just to pull it. So, <laughs> yeah, he's. He was tied up at some of the highest levels of the CCP. So, um, wow. yeah, he's, he's, uh, so his book, Red Roulette, it's, it's an interesting read. Again, I think he probably downplays kind of some of maybe his, his positioning and some of that, but it is kind of an inside look at how it all works, um, on the inside of China. So, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I haven't heard that name in a while, but. Anyway, that's what he said. I think he did interview with the New York Times. Yeah, and so, that, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, so his his argument is that it's 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 worse than what they're yeah, saying. It's it's it, yeah, it's a lot worse that consumer products aren't selling, and you're going to see deflation even the consumer side of it. We know that the industrial side has been having a hard time, but you know for the at least what we thought was that the consumer side in China was doing pretty well. But his point, I guess, is that like consumer products, like they're basically, if you look at the numbers for like producer numbers, then it looks like they're having to sell their, their goods and stuff. They're having to cut the prices on it. So that China's actually having deflation in consumer goods. At least that's what he's saying. Now, his point, I think, was that will, it will lead to like tighter controls from Beijing and whatnot. I wasn't so concerned with the political side of it, um, you know, 
my mind Beijing already has a lot of control. So, uh, you know, how much tighter are they going to, they gonna, you know, tighten the noose, but, um, you know, from an oil demand side, that could be really bad for prices. I mean, depending on who you are, consumer producer, but really bad for producer prices for oil in the second half of the year, because a lot of analysts are still saying um, China is going to pick up in H2. Yeah, I'm looking at this piece now from the uh, New York Times that you're referencing. If it's the same one, he does say that his, he, haven't, he hasn't talked to his wife since the book came out. So I guess she's still detained. But he, he says, he has an interesting quote here. He says, companies um, are over, overwhelmingly reducing their exposure. Talk about China. People talk about deglobalization, but the proper term is reglobalization minus China. You won't have one, con- one country replacing China, but operations are spreading to Vietnam, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, and elsewhere. Um, and he so said, isn't that just like, do you, like it, it's becoming more just a wider part of Asia? Yeah, it's just it, it, it's not like it's switching to Africa or like South America. Yeah, and so it's just that people still are going to go international because that's the thing. We talk about deglobalization. It, I don't think people really calculate the cost of, you know, this is silly analogy is how how cheap you can buy like a number two pencil for, and yet the pieces come from all over the world. It's not like they're just cutting that thing down your backyard, you know. So the de- deglobalization thing, I think, is probably closer to a myth, and he seems to say that that. It's going to go places, but not to China. And if China loses a certain percentage of that, you know, how many of their people are employed by just manufacturing jobs? And yep. if they don't have those, that could be a problem. Yeah, that could be a huge problem. Okay. Um, which goes to the next thing. Chinese old demand doesn't. Can I just sense. say one thing that I just yeah. learned from the internet, which is that um, the main source of Chinese met China's methane emissions is rice cultivation. Did you know that? I always thought it was like burning coal. No, I didn't. Apparently, it's cultivating rice. Hmm. Are you really going to tell the Chinese stop cultivating rice? Yeah, that's not going to happen. Like. It's one thing to say stop burning coal. It's another to say stop growing rice. Mm. Mm. Anyway, okay. I did not know that. Now okay. I'm. I, I think that's very interesting. From the Wall Street Journal, Chinese oil demand doesn't make sense. <laughs> does it or does it? Hmm. What do you say? Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I thought that this was an interesting uh, article, although. It's like that herd on the street thing, which is like kind of sort of quasi opinion mm-hmm. type stuff. So um, so they're saying China's economy is having a rough summer, um, though they're still churning out records amount of diesel and importing vast amounts of crude. Either China's economy will accelerate rapidly in the second half, a prospect that currently looks unlikely, as I've been saying all along, or oil demand will revert to more regular patterns. Dragging global consumption and price. Well, okay, can we can we unpack that? So China's importing lots of crude oil. They're turning it into products that they are either using, putting in storage, or selling. So someone's clearly buying it, right? It's not like there's a huge amount of excess diesel on the global market, right? right. Like throwing or they're selling it to Europe because Europe won't buy Russian diesel. So you know, the idea that that has to change if China's economy changes 
you know, is, I think that's, that's a little bit odd. It seems to be working out fine for them. Like that's a, a sector of their economy. If China's economy accelerates and they need to use that diesel, then they'll just start using it or they'll import more. If it gets worse, why would they have to stop import? You know, why would they stop importing more if one bright part of their economy is producing petroleum products and selling them or putting them into storage if they can afford it? So if they're selling- missing something? Well, okay. If I'm, yeah. So let's just make oh. I, um make the numbers up here. So if if you're if you're if you're importing you know um, X, but then you're selling a decent percentage of that more than normal back to the market. That would indicate that your demand is not as strong as it should be, right? Unless, unless unless you're unless you're importing a lot more than you normally would have, and you can kind of I guess that's what they're saying. They're saying like China's importing a lot more, but we don't know how much are they selling versus how much are they putting into to storage. And if they're putting into storage again, that's not a demand thing. That's just a SPR, for lack of a better term, thing. Yeah. Right? Just. And they uh-huh. may see that as a really good idea because if when their economy does accelerate, oil prices will go up. So why wouldn't you want to bank it now while right. oh, yeah, prices absolutely. are in the low 70s, mid 70s? Absolutely. But it, it kind of goes that 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 disconnect we talked about with maybe the price and the economic reality. So if China's just buying oil to put into their tanks, uh, their storage tanks, so that they can keep prices down in the future, then there's there is demand, but the demand is not an economic demand like we need we need it to run the economy it's a a future demand that they're anticipating yeah. and so it's from, a, from the standpoint of they're willing to buy transaction happening that's all the same um but as far as but, but you don't know at some point they quit they have to either slow down buying because there's only so much spr you can have i guess um or they need the economy to pick up, so they start burning off some of that and putting it back in the economy, or selling it somewhere else. But going back to last year, the big talk about the oil prices was this booming Chinese economy. Yeah, and I I, I know I've said it like fifteen times now, but it seems like the the OPEC Saudis especially never bought into that, probably because the Chinese told them don't buy into it, and so. I, I don't know. To me, it, it makes perfect sense. I, I get what these, these guys are saying, but huh. it, it just makes perfect sense. Like this is what this is what OPEC's been telling us the whole time is they don't expect um, whatever you think is going to happen to happen. They expect it to be far less, and that's how they that's how they've acted all year. Yeah. Except okay, so this is so the article claim the article they calculate China's apparent petroleum demand as refinery runs plus net oil product imports. So, but why don't they count their exports then? Like, why don't they do refinery runs plus net oil minus, refinery runs plus net oil product imports minus exports? That Or is net product, is net oil product imports already account for their exports? Maybe it does. I don't know. But they claim it was up 25% and 17% year over year in April and May. Uh, Diesel production in May is 26% higher than a year earlier and a full 40% higher than May 2019. So the idea, though, they said that, so then they're like saying, 
things are really bad in the property sector. And this is like an insane figure given how bad things are in China's property sector. Domestic air travel is recovered, but still jet fuel is a small component. It is, is a small amount relative to diesel and gasoline. So their argument is that Chinese regulators and refiners also misjudged China's oil demand and because they issue their permits for imports, you know, they, they issue like, here's how much crude oil you can, you know, get different refineries can import. They issue too much, like too many, um, too many, uh, you know, they, they made the quotas too high because they thought that they were going to need more oil. But my question then is that they, they reissue these, these, um, uh, these quotas like every like in H2. So if they saw that things were not going so well in H1, why did they then increase them for H2? Because I'm pretty sure I remember that they they increased them for H2. My thought was they increased them not because they need it, but because they're actually doing well. They're making money selling products around Asia. So why not continue to do that? You know, so they they increase. So I just think that, that this article isn't taking into Okay, it says net petroleum product exports in early 2023 were indeed very strong, but then in the second quarter they cratered, but they kept producing diesel, even with lower prices and a smaller export quota. Mm -hmm. So they are, so I guess they're arguing that this is an issue that you run into with a managed economy. Well, that they is they they they're like oh demand is going to be this so they issued their quotas for it when actually that wasn't demand, um, like you know and so the Soviet Union used to be like, you will make five hundred thousand pairs of, you know, this color and this size shoes when in fact nobody needed them or whatever it was probably like three million. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. That's very interesting though because it makes you think that like. It really makes me think that we have just the tip of we, the 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 knowledge that we have about what's actually happening with the Chinese economy is like the tip of the iceberg, the very yeah. tip compared to what's actually going on. Well, and that's and maybe I'm... nobody knows. Maybe the Chinese don't even understand it. Well, it's it's there's there's a simple explanation, which is if you think you can turn off and on a global economy, you are foolish. Yeah. That should have been known before 2020, and we pretended like that wasn't the case. And yep. and so China is, you know, had you know, the, for all the talk of their closure, they obviously they've been doing stuff um, throughout this period. But yeah, thinking you can just turn this off and turn this on is it's just not that simple. There's not enough math quizzes in the world to to figure it out because that's not how it works, unfortunately. So, but but. Our next piece talks about this some. Ed, is it Morse? Morse? Yeah, Ed Morse. Ed Morse. Bulls Funny got story, I got an email that was meant for him on like, it was like July 4th and it was from CNBC Internet in Asia. And they wanted me, like they said, I thought they were sending me an email asking me to come on TV that day, but it was actually um, sent to Ed Morse. <laughs> I'm both flattered and a little peeved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think Ed would probably do great. But if he can't, I'm available. So, um he says, quote, the bulls got it all wrong. The world is still waiting for a, a real Chinese recovery. Europe is in a recession, and we still don't know if the U.S. will have a hard landing. Thank you very much, Mr. Morse. And oh, by the way, 
cities. Did you see what cities summer average is for oil prices? No, what is it? Like 83, no, $83 a barrel. Uh, I think that um, Ed Morse got it wrong too. Well, 83 is a lot closer than 97. That's true, but it's still like $10 off. Okay. I'm gonna give him. I'm gonna give him. I'm gonna give him some credit for being at least you know within a, a ten dollar bill. You know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm with you, but but it's more realistic. You okay. know, it's more realistic. Um, I mean, summer goes all the way until when does summer end officially? Officially uh, in September, like September. I think September like twentieth is usually the first. Is like the the. What is it called? The yeah, so June autumnal 21st, equinox or something? Yeah, so June 21st to September 23rd. So you might could get an 80 average. You know, you, we've only been in summer for less than a month now. So we're talking Brent, right? Yeah, Brent. Yeah. So you might could get you got two months to get to 83. You you might might could get close to that. You still have to get some high higher prices but uh, yeah i mean you, we've got to get up to at least 85 86 in order to average out the like yeah. 76 70 yeah. yeah 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 so i just like do you see it happen i mean okay driving in the u.s what i think gas buddy said that um the oil, gasoline demand was very strong last week so there you go there you go gasoline demand is strong that's what we need yeah. um he also let's see there's something else here um, Chinese data show There's one more quote in here that I thought was irrelevant, but um, he said, "Oh yeah, fun- well this is yeah fundamentals in the crude." He claimed, well, he says it's going to get up to eighty. He said, um, he thinks that um, futures will pop pro- that the two million barrels a day of output cutbacks by Saudis and other OPEC plus partners. Will prop up oil futures to near eighty dollars. Mm-hmm. But city's got a, a city has an official of eighty three, so maybe he's slightly more bearish than what the official. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, he said fundamentals in the crude market have been fragile for some time, and I find that interesting. Have they been fragile? Is that the right word you would say? Fragile? Because if I think fragile, I think of a small disturbance can put us into a tailspin of you know, high prices because we, I wouldn't think they're fragile. I think they've been just wrong. Wrong might be the word I would want to use. I don't know if I want to say fragile. Yeah, like, I, don't, up, I don't know. Maybe? Yeah, I mean, maybe by fragile, he just means like weak, like not yeah, not strong, okay. like not high. But I, yeah. I don't know. It's, I think that that's the kind of word that they say when they're like looking for something like literary or to say and yeah. it doesn't really have a lot of meaning yeah. but um because i was thinking about it and like earlier today there was like a whole hullabaloo because reuters published a headline that said that the saudis were like cutting them uh, cutting or like there were going to be more opec cuts but it was an old headline from june 4th that they accidentally republished and oil jumped like two dollars a barrel and went back down <laughs> <laughs> Is that weakness in the oil market, or is that like surprising stability? Uh huh. Uh-huh. I think. Yeah. I think. I think they're just desperate for a reason to move the price up. <laughs> it's desperation. Desperate. Yeah, the oil market has been desperate for some time. Might be a better way to to mention it. Okay. Is that was is that the piece? The dirty and sludgy oil runs. Oh, I don't think so. I think that I don't know. Was it? Uh, that's something else. 
Okay, let's talk um, about that real quick since we're we'll yeah. in with Japan on the uh, natural gas. So, okay, so dirty and sludgy oil runs uh, hot in Asia. Saudis cut supply back. The Saudis have got to be getting tired of cutting supply, right? Oh yeah, this this was about how um how we're taught how um heavy oil is um the prices for heavy oil are going up because um there's because so, of Saudi Arabia's um cut so they're saying that the value of these heavy or medium sour crudes is now get they're now you know the prices for them are now more than those the lighter oils like um you know uh, i think saudi arabia does a arab light and abu dhabi's something called murban um because they're saying it's because um I guess because they're cutting back on the amount of light oils that are available. So now the people are trying to get more sour crude and Urals is a sour crude. And so the price for Urals has actually gone up relative to other oils. And they're saying that it's actually gotten very close to the price cap uh, number. It's almost at 60. And that could start to be an issue. So I think that's very interesting that basically these cuts, these um these voluntary cuts by the Saudis have caused Russian oil prices to go up just like girls, you know? And, and so, you know, if you think about it, you wonder like, Hmm, did they do that as a favor? Like, is that, is that, was that part of the plan? Yeah, but how much does it cost them to prop up the Russians? Well, you know, it's interesting. Does is I think they see it as like, fine, we can cut a million barrels a day now, we it's not going to hurt us in the long run if it keeps prices up, yeah. you know, because the, the Russians aren't making that much. more. Remember, like they're still selling their oil for under $60 yeah. a barrel when the price of, say, like Arab light might be 78 or whatever. I don't know what what the price is, but it's um it's just kind of uh, kind of interesting how because of the type of grades of oil that it actually ended up. Uh, bringing in more money for the for the Russians. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because a little over three years ago is when the Saudis and the Russians had their their little spat. Yeah, right. And and that was the thing that started seeing the prices. I mean, the prices rise off. And that's the thing that really began to crush them. And so now. You're you're saying the opposite is happening, which is the Saudis are trying to prop up the Russian prices. Maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe that's what. Maybe that was part of uh, like they got Russia to be like, okay, we're going to cut our exports by five hundred thousand barrels a day, and the Saudis were like, hey, we're cutting a million barrels a day. That's going to prop up Urals by like this amount or something. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. I I I don't know. I don't know if it was the thing they meant to do or not, but I wouldn't pass them. Yeah, it happened regardless whether they meant to or not. Okay, Japan to propose global natural gas reserve to avoid shortages. This just sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> what do you think? You know, I, I mean, a lot of um, a lot of like places, you know, like have you know they keep natural gas mm-hmm. in in storage. I mean, Europe has caverns, Russia has caverns. We have caverns in the U.S. where we have natural gas stores um I, I don't know it's i think it's it's different because natural gas is yes you can ship it globally by liquefying it but it's not priced that way and so it's not the same as oil like like if the us releases a lot of oil from its 
strategic reserve that affects the world. If the U.S. releases a lot of natural gas from its strategic reserve, that doesn't do anything except bring prices in the U.S. down. Mm. Even if you know, and maybe in Mexico or Canada, if we're shipping it there, it's not like you know, it's not. I don't know if you can do that with a commodity that isn't global, and if it's even if there's even any worth. It's not necessarily worth doing it. Like I could say, see, Japan wants to create its own strategic reserve of natural gas, or maybe like an Asian one, or like I could see, I mean, if Japan had any friends in Asia that it wanted to do like all around Asia, but I, I just don't see any value in it because it's not a commodity. It's not traded. It's not a, it's not traded the way oil is globally. Like there's no one price for natural gas. Yeah, and the other thing is high natural gas prices. I don't know, some analysts can do the numbers on this, but it seems that high natural gas prices help bring down oil prices because it makes Permian wells more profitable. Yes. Right. So you get more, in theory, you get more production because you've got more wells that are more profitable. Um, And the problem was during the last boom was that, the, that we just didn't have any reason for the natural gas to uh, anywhere to put it. But maybe you could say, well, that would be a reason for more storage, but this, those permanent wells, you know, if they're 70, 30 splits or 60, 40 splits or 80, 20 splits, whatever it is, you know, the high natural gas makes them more productive. And so um, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if OPEC would be a fan of generating more natural gas demand because that would give the U S producers, a, a unique competitive advantage on the on the permanent stuff it would seem right yeah it really would so imagine imagine filling that reserve like the permian would just get rich right and so they can sell their oil especially if it was gas. in the u.s right yeah exactly so you, you sell your oil and gas uh and so yeah so i don't know of course you know how big a reserve is and all that stuff's a question but but you know if you're sitting here at wti at 74 and natural gas is at uh 251 well if natural gas is at seven or six and wti is at 74 then you're drilling like crazy because now your wells are going bonkers and so um but in a normal market that would help push help maybe theoretically um push down oil prices because you just drill more because you'd have uh, potential to make more off your well so i don't know i don't know if it's it's as simple as saying hey we need a an international thing um yeah apparently japan wants the iea to discuss it at its meeting in february japan japan's dependent on everyone else i mean i I get why they're for them it makes a lot of sense right yeah i just think it makes so much more sense to have a regional one than a um than a global one like the european union has natural gas storage targets for Europe, why shouldn't Japan get if they want to get together with like Australia and the Philippines and whatever and create kind of a regional natural gas store target, you know, uh, natural gas storage targets and, and a framework regionally? I think that would just make so much more sense than a global one. Why do they need why do they need anyone else? I mean, yeah. They can't. They can't negotiate with the U.S. producers in maybe the Haynesville or the Appalachia or somewhere like that. It's a lot more gassy. Um, and and go get deals from them directly than just build their own SPR. Yeah, it's also like like the price of. It's like like if they're concerned about 
not about LND prices getting too high for them, it would make more sense to have a regional storage, mm-hmm. you know, stuff in, in their region because they're the prices they pay, unless they're really entering into a lot of long-term contracts with producers, if, if they're concerned about spot price of LNG, it just makes so much more sense to have it be regionally based because that ha- is much more likely to affect the spot price that they would be paying for LNG anyway. Could they not have it just stored here? And just All ship- their natural goods. Just, just, just buy it here, store it here, and then ship it over when, when you need it. Yeah. I mean, Aramco used to own like a big oil storage facility in Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just... if I was a U.S. producer, maybe I would buy a storage facility in like the Philippines mm. and have it kind of there. And then, as soon as prices went in Asia, I would fill up the ships. Yeah. You know, store it in the Philippines while it's cheap in the U.S. But buy cheap natural gas in the U.S. Liquefy it in the U.S send it like ship it to the Philippines and just have it sit in storage facilities or whatever in my caverns. And then as soon as uh, spot prices like go up in Asia, take advantage. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what the costs are. Maybe the costs are too big. Maybe it's, I don't know what it costs to store LNG could be, or to store natural gas. And then does it cost a lot to like, to like buy LNG and then regasify it. I, I don't know how it's stored in the storage cavern. I don't know anything about it, but it could be like super costly. That's also true. Okay. All right. Well, someone I'm sure listening knows and may, might send in the answer. But until then, we'll be back next week. Dr. Wald, where, where will you be in the meantime? Let's see. Uh, well, Tuesday morning, I'm going to be on TD Ameritrade Network uh, talking about oil futures and commodities stuff. Uh, on a morning show and then i will be on investing.com later this week too okay i have some inside the war rooms that will be coming out and so with that we'll talk to everyone next week bye